0: Well, I'm ready to talk to you and you're ready to take a nap. Uh, it reminds me of a, um, a compliment I once received. I had just shared a message and someone said, Frank, the Lord really spoke to me through your message. God never gave me a dream like that in my entire life. If you ever get invited to speak at a conference and you notice that you're slated to speak after lunch, it means one of two things. The conference host has overrated your ability to keep the attention of the audience who has full stomachs. or the conference host does not like you very much. The conference host has never organized a conference. the next. Thank you. I'll choose to believe that one. This is an introduction to church, and so in this session, I'm going to attempt to discuss with you the church meeting, and this will be an introduction to the church meeting as it is envisioned in the New Testament. Um, I really wish I had nine weeks to cover the subject because there's going to be a whole lot that, that we can't possibly go into, so this will just be an overview, the Lord's Supper, A woman's role in the church meeting, decision-making, leadership, the community nature of the church, the community lifestyle of the church, the mission of the church are all beyond the scope of this message. So I'm just going to take a slice out of the entire picture of what the church is and how it functions and just focus our attention on the meeting of the church as it is envisioned in the New Testament when you read through the scripture particularly the New Testament you find that there are many different kinds of meetings that the early Christians engaged in for example you have prayer meetings remember when Peter was put in prison and he was about to be executed The Christians in Jerusalem gathered together and they began to touch the throne of God for Peter. And, of course, when the Lord answered, they didn't believe that it was Peter who was released. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank God for that story, because sometimes we have struggles in that area, and yet God is merciful. So they are prayer meetings. There are also evangelistic meetings. Remember when Philip went to Samaria? And he proclaimed the gospel there, won people to the Lord, and then asked for Peter and John to come and lay the foundation. That was an evangelistic meeting. Then there are what I would call apostolic meetings. And this is where an apostle, one who is sent, is either going into a city and planting a church from the ground up, or they're visiting a church that's already been planted, and they're encouraging and equipping it. So when Paul was in Ephesus and he rented out the Hall of Tyranus and he ministered there for five hours a day for two years, that's an apostolic meeting. When he visited the church in Troas, which was a group that already got started previous, he spent an entire day with them, actually an evening, and he preached until midnight. He was building up the saints in that church. And of course, he went a little bit too long and somebody fell out of the window and He had to raise him from the dead. Anyway, and then there are decision making meetings where the church comes together to deal with a crisis or handle a situation wherein it must find the mind of Christ and make a decision. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is a perfect example of that. Well, we're not going to talk about any of those kind of meetings. Instead, we're going to talk about the meeting of the church, the church meeting. This is the regular meeting that a local body of believers experiences when it comes together on a regular basis. And there is a specific goal to that meeting. Now, the Catholics call it mass, and the Protestants call it the church service. The Sunday morning church service. The New Testament never calls it by those names. Those terms, if you think about it, mass and service have a very ritualistic flavor to them. The New Testament calls it the meeting or the assembling or the gathering. So consequently, what I would like to do this afternoon is take us through some passages in the New Testament and ask a few questions. But before we ask those questions, I'd like to make a few simple statements. Number one, the modern church service that we are all familiar with, the institutional church service, the Sunday morning church service, is utterly and completely foreign to the New Testament. It was not invented by God the Father. It did not originate with Jesus Christ. It did not come from the Holy Spirit. It did not come from the Apostles. You cannot find it anywhere in the New Testament. It was invented in the sixth century by a person named Gregory, also known as Gregory the Great. It was set in concrete it did not move for a thousand years, and in 1523, Martin Luther came along, and he adjusted it and modified it. And for the next 300 years, it underwent more adjustments and modifications. But in effect, if you compare it to the 6th century order of worship, there were very little changes. And that's the same order of worship that 350 million Protestants experience every Sunday morning. It doesn't matter what denomination you're in. The order is the same. What is the order? What happens first? You have your greeting, then the music minister or the worship team or the choir director leads the singing, and you stand and you follow. Then you sit down, and then there are the announcements. And after the announcements, the offertory, and then the climax, the sermon, where you stare at the back of someone's head for 45 minutes. And then after that, you have perhaps more singing, the benediction, and you go home. It's that way, no matter what tradition you're from, if you're a Protestant Christian. Okay, so that's first. Number two, according to the New Testament, God has called His people to meet according to certain spiritual principles. Number three, the early Christians met according to those principles for spiritual and practical reasons. And then one question, should we as Christians living in the 21st century gather together according to the same principles that governed The first century church. So I'll just leave that question hanging in the air and you can answer it yourself when we're through with this. There is one chunk of scripture that gives us a really good, clear insight into how the early Christians gathered for their church meetings. Now, for centuries, the Corinthian church has been bashed. For good reason. They were a very, very troubling church for Paul who planted it. But I thank God for the mistakes that the Corinthian church made because there's one mistake they made that if they didn't make it, we would have no idea how the early Christians gathered or we would have a very shallow idea of how they gathered. And it is in 1 Corinthians. It begins in chapter 11 and it goes all the way through the end of chapter 14. And there Paul is addressing the problems they were having in their regular gatherings. Now let me paint a picture as to what was going on. The Corinthian church was very zealous for spiritual gifts. But they took it to an extreme, and they particularly enjoyed speaking in tongues. So much so that the meetings were dominated by many of the saints speaking in tongues at the same time, talking over one another, no one interpreting the tongues. So there was confusion, there was chaos. And Paul begins to write about their meetings and he addresses these issues. And when you look at that whole passage, it is as if the Holy Spirit pulls back the curtain and we get to peek inside a first century church meeting. It's the only place in the entire Scripture where this happens. And so what I would like to do is go through that passage and make some observations about it. Okay, So I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1st Corinthians chapter 12. We're not going to begin in chapter 11 because that deals with the Lord's Supper. And we, don't have, uh, we don't have the time to handle that in this session. But turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 12. I'm not going to read the whole passage Instead, I would like to lift some selections from chapter 12 and chapter 14, and then we'll weigh in after we do that. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols however you were led therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit now there are various varieties of gifts but the same Spirit and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord there are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things and all persons But to each one, and that's worth circling, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, I just want to make a few comments here. Paul says, when you were pagans, you were being led by dumb idols or mute idols. Now, what is a dumb idol? It's an idol that does not have the power of speech. They were following gods that did not speak. They were mute. But then he turns around and says, any person speaking by the Spirit of God will say, Jesus is Lord. And then he goes into a whole discussion on the body of Christ and how the different members speak. He's making a profound point here, and that is this. Jesus Christ has the power of speech. He's not a dumb idol. He's not mute. And He speaks through His body. That's how He speaks. Through His body. And if you can say Jesus is Lord with conviction, the Holy Spirit helped you say that. The Holy Spirit just spoke through you. Praise the Lord. So his whole point here is that Jesus Christ still speaks. He still expresses Himself, but He does it through the members of His body. Okay, now, he goes on. Look at verse 12. For even as the body is one... Now he's talking about the physical body. He's using an analogy. Even as your physical body is one body, yet it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many are one body, so also is Christ. Now that passage, if you just step back from it and think about it, is astounding. He's saying just like you have a physical body and that physical body has many members but it's one body and it's all connected together and it's one body. Jesus Christ is the same way. In other words, Jesus Christ and His body are one. Jesus Christ cannot be separated from His body. Jesus Christ is His body. In other words, the church and Jesus Christ are inseparable. All right. He is the head. We are the body. We are members that belong to Him. Now that is an incredible statement. And then he talks about the functioning of this body. Look at uh, verse 14. For the body is not one member. Brother Lance, the body is not a tongue the body is not one member it's many if the foot says because I am not a hand I'm not part of that body it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body and if the ear says because I'm not an eye I'm not part of the body it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body if the whole body were an eye where would the hearing be Notice the functioning of the different parts of the body. Hearing. If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? The sense of smell. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? And that's a question I have to ask to modern day Christianity. If the body is one member, where's the body? Well, guess what? When you go to Sunday morning church service, you are watching the functioning of one or at best two members. Where is the body? It's passive. And consequently, Jesus Christ is not being expressed in fullness because He cannot express His fullness through one or two members. No more than you can express your personality through your finger, your hand, your left eye, your tongue, it takes the whole body to manifest Him. Verse 20, But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And then he continues to talk about the functioning of the body of Christ. Now let's turn over to chapter 14. Here's where we get a good, clear look as to how that body functions in the church meeting. All right, if you remember, they were having an issue with one gift dominating the entire meeting, and that was the gift of tongues. So keep that in mind as you read through this passage. Let's uh, start with verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. One who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I would like to just stop here and perhaps redefine prophesying. I grew up in a number of different denominations and one in particular uh, taught an awful lot about what prophecy was. And generally I was taught the prophecy was giving a word from the Lord to an individual about their life or a word from the Lord about the future. And I would say that that is an incomplete understanding of prophecy. The Apostle John, who penned the book of Revelation, made this statement. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A prophecy is an unveiling. A prophecy is a revelation. It is a revelation first and foremost of a person. It is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ go back into your Old Testament and read all the prophecies that were given and you will note this one thing that the vast bulk of those prophecies in the Old Testament contained a revelation of the coming Messiah they were speaking about the Christ And if you go into the New Testament and you look at the apostles preaching with a prophetic anointing, whether it's through the book of Acts or they're writing their epistles to churches in crisis, they are speaking about Jesus Christ and they are unveiling Jesus Christ. Who is the author of prophecy? The Holy Spirit. Who does the Holy Spirit speak of? He does not speak of himself. He has come to testify of me, Jesus said consequently I want you to see prophecy as a revelation of Jesus Christ an unveiling of Christ consider that okay what does prophecy do it edifies that means it builds up it exhorts that means it encourages and it comforts okay now look with me at verse 12 so you also since you are zealous of spiritual gifts Seek to abound for the edification of the church. What does the word edification mean? That's right, sister. To build up. We heard our brother Lance talking about God is a builder. And he has an intention to build a house and to build a city. Well, to edify means to build up. And we're going to talk about what that building is being built up into. A little bit later. So it's to build. It is to build up. Look with me now at uh, verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, now there you have a reference to the church meeting. If the whole church in Corinth assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? And that's exactly what was happening there. Confusion and chaos. But if all prophesy, and I want you to underscore those words, all prophesy. Not some. All prophesy or all reveal Jesus Christ. All unveil Christ. All speak of Christ. And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all? He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is among you. Now, I don't know about you in this room, but I have watched this happen many times in a church meeting. And I'll say this to you. If you ever experience a church meeting, first century style, and you continue to, this will happen. It will happen. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? What's the summary? What is the final point? When you assemble, when you meet, each one, that's worth circling, each one, each one, who's left out of that? Each one, every member, has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. Now he's giving them broad guidelines to cause these meetings to be edifying, so that they will walk in some kind of semblance and order opposed to chaos. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself into God. Let two or three prophets speak. And one translation says, in turn. In other words, you're not supposed to have two people prophesying at the same time. That's not edifying. You're not going to hear them both at the same time. They have to take turns. And let the others pass judgment. Now notice verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy, you can all speak Christ, you can all reveal Christ one by one. Now that's a passage worth underlining. We are seeing a first century church meeting right here. You may all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That means even though the anointing of God is upon you, you can control yourself and you can stop speaking and you can let someone interrupt you. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now here he's broadening this beyond Corinth. And he's saying that God is a God of order, and God is a God of mutual participation, not just here in Corinth, but in all the churches. And then in verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I have written are the Lord's commandment. Whoa! He didn't say, this is the Lord's suggestion. He said it's His commandment. That's interesting. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. And do not forbid to speak in tongues. Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Okay. I would like to make some observations about this meeting. The meeting of the first century church. One, you can read that entire passage Start in 1 Corinthians 11, go all the way through to the end of chapter 14, and you will discover that there is no human headship in this meeting at all. All That means there is no one leading this meeting. There is no human being controlling it. There isn't even anybody facilitating it. Mm -hmm. Brothers and sisters, there is no... New Testament basis at all for the modern pastor as we know him to be. There's none. The New Testament mentions pastors, plural, one time. One time, and it never defines it. But if you read carefully, you will discover that the man that we call pastor today did not exist in the first century. You will never find a man called the head of a church. You never will find a man preaching sermons. Every time the church meets, you will not find that. It is not there. That was an invention of the Reformation in the 16th century. And it was a throwback to the Catholic priest. A Protestant pastor is a Reformed Catholic priest historically. Right. And you'll find the word priest in the New Testament but it's not that man running around with a backwards collar and wearing black in the same way the modern pastor cannot be found in the new testament this meeting has no human headship at all but guess what there is someone leading this meeting but he's invisible (laughs) and he is head of his body and he's expressing himself through that body, because that body is functioning out of the very life of the head of the church that dwells inside of it. Now, the New Testament has quite a bit to say about the headship of Jesus Christ. He is head over his body. Headship and lordship are two different things, although they're related. Lordship is the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his people as individuals. Many people know Jesus Christ as a Lord. They're those who have given their lives to Him and said, You're the Lord, not me. I give my life to follow you. They know the Lordship of Christ. But headship is a reference to His relationship to His body corporately. That's when a group of people say, We are not going to follow and we are not going to put above us And we are not going to be controlled by a human being. We are going to put ourselves under the headship of Jesus Christ, for He is head of His church, and we are going to submit to His headship. And we will not allow a person to dominate us with their gift. There are few people in this earth today that know His headship. But this stands at the very center of what God is wanting from His people to make the headship of Christ a reality. Now, I want you to notice something else about this meeting, and that is, even though they were having all these problems, Paul never said to them, guys, you're messing up, you don't know what you're doing, it's confusion, it's chaos, I need to send somebody down there to start giving you sermons every week you meet, and you need to just sit and listen. He never erected a human head. Now, that's important. Instead, he gave them some broad guidelines. And he kept the headship of Christ intact. Okay, another thing you should notice about this meeting is that it is marked by mutual participation. It is an open participatory meeting where any member of the body can function. What does he say? When you come together, every one of you has something of Christ to bring to build up and edify the church. Yes, sir. You may all prophesy. You may all reveal Christ one by one. I mean, it is peppered throughout the entire passage. The early Christians, when they got together, they did not come like we do to a church service to receive. They didn't come with the intention to get. They came to give. They came to bring their part as a member of the body of Christ to the church in that meeting to edify the other brothers and sisters. It was an open meeting. It was so open and it was so participatory that if someone was standing in that meeting and prophesying and sharing the Lord Jesus Christ, that if there was a revelation given to someone else in that room, they had the right and the privilege to stand up and interrupt that person speaking. And Paul says, let the first person speaking hold his peace. And that other person could share whatever it was they were saying. That has spontaneity to it. I mean, this this is a meeting that is so open, there's so much freedom, that if you are receiving a revelation of Christ when someone else is speaking, you can interrupt the person speaking. Now, imagine that happening in a Sunday morning church service. <laughs> The pastor is giving his sermon. You're sitting there. and Pastor, I just have to share what the Lord showed me while you were speaking. Well, you can bet that the snipers in the balcony (laughs) will take you out. That does not happen. The thought wouldn't even enter into your mind. Because that's not a first century church meeting. That is an invention that came much later. Okay, so it is an open participatory meeting. Next, There is no stated or static liturgical order in this meeting. There's no liturgy. There's no order of worship. This meeting is open and there's spontaneity to it. And perhaps there may be some planning, but you know what? The early Christians were not tied down to a liturgy. And if you want to spell death, if you want to bring death into your corporate gathering, just go through the same liturgical order, week after week, do the same thing, and you will die spiritually. Not to mention, you'll be bored to death. And I just want to interject here and tell you why I left the organized church. I left the institutional church, and I've never been back, and I don't ever envision going back. I left for four reasons. One, I got a taste of that river that was flowing inside of me. I got in touch with it. And when you get in touch with that river, that river is moving. And that river wants to be released. It needs an outlet. Okay? Do you know what I'm saying? If you ever have had an experience with the Lord, you want to share it with other people. Because that movement in you is not for you. Only. It's for the body of Christ. But then you go to church on Sunday morning, and guess what? You have been plugged, and that river has nowhere to go. There's no environment for it to go. Like dead sea. Absolutely, it turns into a sea. The water is still, and it, it, it dies. So consequently, I was frustrated. I was frustrated because there was no outlet. The second thing was... The first few years of, of listening to sermons and, and going through the, the song service and then the sermons, the first few years, that was great. You know, you're a young Christian, you're learning new things you never heard. But after a while, it becomes the most boring thing that you can imagine. It's all the same thing all over again because you're really only hearing from one part of the body. And usually that part is recycling what they've heard. And you become bored. You become bored because you're not functioning and you become bored because you're hearing from one part of the body of Christ. And it's typically the same thing over and over again, especially if you're listening to the same pastor for a number of years. I'm telling you my experience. And I just want to add a small note here. Do you realize that the average Christian, their spiritual growth is dependent upon the study and preparation and speaking of one person? Think about that the majority of their Christian growth is dependent upon that one member of the body and their preparation, their spiritual knowledge, their spiritual life. Now contrast that to a church where everyone functions. And you're part of that body of believers. What's happening? Now, you're hearing from not just one member, you're hearing from many members. And the spiritual input is not coming from one piece of the body of Christ. It's coming from many. Right. And boy, that's, that's a night and day difference. I'm yes, sir. the image of a nursing home where it's so sad and they're just laying there and they don't seem to have any hope or desire to do anything because they're dependent upon somebody else feeding them and providing their beds. Mm-hmm. Excellent, brother. Excellent. <laughs> Waiting for death. That's a great analogy. The third reason why I left is because I became convicted. I, I actually started to read the New Testament in the light of what did the early Christians do. And I realized that it was it was a night and day difference. And then I began to look at the history, and I realized that all these things that we do in modern Christianity came from the traditions of men. A large part of it from pagan traditions, believe it or not. The last reason was I became desperate. And I really don't understand why this particular experience happens to some Christians and why it doesn't seem to happen to others. But there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, deep calls to deep. And there was something in me that was not satisfied with what I was seeing and hearing. And I do believe that any person that gets that bug will come to be desperate in institutional Christianity and will be looking for that depth. My own personal judgment is that modern Christianity is so shallow that you can hardly drown a gnat in it. It is very shallow. I met that depth when I left the organized church and I began to gather around Christians who were attempting to meet under his headship. So this is a meeting that has no liturgy another observation is that there is no tension between an open participatory meeting where every member is free to function and order Mm -hmm. there's no tension there and this is the great clerical objection well if we open up our church meetings and we let everyone share we're going to have chaos well actually that's not true if put this word "if" in bold, if those people are equipped to receive from the Lord and if they're equipped to share that same Lord with one another, they will be able to experience some of the most glorious meetings where Christ is seen and revealed that you and I could ever imagine. And I'm not speaking out of theory, brothers and sisters. I have been in scores of meetings. Now, I've been in scores of dead meetings. And I've been in scores of meetings that were horrible. And some of them beyond mention. But I have been in meetings that were so glorious that you felt like you left the earth. And you left saying, I saw, I heard, I experienced the Lord Jesus Christ through not one person, but many. Amen. So this business about, well, you can't have order and an open meeting is hogwash. That can happen, but it does take a little bit of equipping for a group of saints to get there, and I want to talk about that later. Okay, one more thing. You notice how he talks about if you all speak in tongues and someone comes in there who is unlearned, That word there is uninitiated. In other words, they're a new convert. They're very new to the Christian faith. Or he says they're unsafe. They'll think you're crazy. Well, there's a principle there, and that principle is this, that the first century church meeting matched the culture where it was being experienced, where the church was meeting. It matched the culture to the point where somebody who wasn't even a Christian can come in there and feel comfortable did not think it was weird or strange or foreign. Now there's a point here to be taken because I have been in many house church meetings where you wonder what planet these people came from because so many things are so weird and bizarre. But this is not the meeting of the first century. There's order in this meeting, yet it's open, yet there's freedom. And at the same time, an unbeliever can come in there, not only feel comfortable, but fall on his face Mm -hmm. and say, God is among you. Mm -hmm. That happens when the body of Christ is unleashed to function and given a little bit of help as to how to do that in an orderly way. Mm. And I say that out of my experience. I've been in quite a number of churches, and I have traveled to many churches. And this, brothers and sisters, is not something that was only for the first century Christians and we read about it and it was great and that's the way they did things then no this can be experienced today it can be experienced and encountered now And I will say this you have never lived until you have been in a meeting where God's people have been equipped to know Christ to experience Christ and they come to that meeting ready and prepared to share him with one another that is one powerful experience Amen. and I'll tell you something else that is transforming well this brings me to answer the question why did the early Christians meet like this and I said in the opening they met this way for spiritual and practical reasons I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 I've heard a lot of people say well you know what that's the way the early Christians met when the church was immature and they just got started. But we have evolved. And so consequently, you know, going to a building and sitting down in a pew and listening to sermons, well we've evolved to that. I think that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Because what we're seeing in the first century is the purity of the ecclesia, the Church of God, and we're seeing the ways of God in the very beginning. If you've actually experienced what I'm talking about, and I hope you will have that experience if you haven't, you just compare the two. I know for myself, I can never go back and sit in a pew and listen to sermons. I I just can't do it. (laughs) Listen to this poem. A brother sent this to me in the mail. I don't know who he is. I never met him before, but he wrote this poem. Funny looking varmint I saw today, a creature like a science fiction movie display. No legs, no arms, no sinews, no bands, no bones, no hair, no feet, and no hands. No torso, no neck, no nose, no eyes. So what was this monster that caused me surprise? Twas the church I beheld that brought me to tears. One single mouth and a whole bunch of ears. (laughs) Pretty good. Uh, uh, uh. The purpose of the first century church meeting was the edification of the body. God has an intention, and, and Brother Lance talked about it. He is seeking to build a people together into the head. He's seeking to build a people together to reflect the head. And that building occurs by the body of Christ functioning. And we're told in Ephesians 4, the body, listen to this, builds itself up in love, in Christ. It builds itself up. But right before that, he says, God has said in the church, Certain members of the body designed to equip the church to equip the church to do what to build itself up Mm -hmm. See so there's equipping and then their church builds itself up into Jesus Christ Now with that thought in mind look at Hebrews chapter 3 This is not a pleasant passage, but it makes a point the uh, Christians that are being addressed here in the book of Hebrews were under intense persecution And many of them were Jewish and they were turning back to the Jewish rituals and the synagogue services. And so the writer here gives them a series of warnings about returning back to the old law and the old way of life. And he says this in verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to have anything to do with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's not good news. How many of you have seen Christians come to the Lord, they start going to church, and their candle burns out, and they fall away and they're back in the world? Have you seen that before? And of course, they're told, this is what they're told, come to church, you've got to keep hearing sermons, and that won't happen to you. Well, look at what the writer of Hebrews says. What is the antidote to falling away from the living God? Verse 13. But encourage one another. Exhort one another. Notice it's not pray more. Notice it's not get the Old Testament scrolls and study the the Scriptures. Notice it's not that. Notice that it's not Listen to sermons. <laughs> it's encourage one another. It's exhort one another. Day after day, as long as it is called today. Brothers and sisters, your spiritual prosperity and my spiritual prosperity is hinged on meetings of the people of God where we are exhorting one another. Where we are hearing about our Lord from one another. Where the body of Christ is functioning. Sermons do not transform people. They don't. But the functioning of the body of Christ does. Because you're hearing not one part of His body. You're hearing the whole Christ coming forth from the different members. Now let's look at Hebrews 10. And this is the favorite chapter that pastors use to get you and I to go to church services under the tidal wave of guilt. (laughs) Look at verse 24, Hebrews 10, and let us, plural, consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Notice that. Stimulating one another. Inspiring one another. Not forsaking our own assembling together. Now that's the part you hear from the pulpit. Don't forsake the assembly. you got to come to church every week. you got to come Sunday morning, and, and if you're really devoted, you've got to come Sunday night. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The Bible says it. But yet the rest of the verse is conveniently overlooked. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but what? Encouraging one another. Exhorting one another. Why? For if we go on sinning willfully, and I'm not going to read the rest of that passage, but my point is this. He's saying to these Christians one simple thing. The remedy... The antidote to prevent you from falling away from your Lord, from being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, is by encouraging one another. It's by allowing the body of Christ to function and for you to get in that body where there is mutual exhortation and to receive life from the body of Christ. This is no small thing, brothers and sisters. This is why um, Tony said earlier, that the testimony has been from many who have left the organized church and they get into a body where there's mutual encouragement, I've grown more in three weeks than I have in three years. But there is something else. (laughs) There is something else here. And it's not for us. It's for God. And I appreciate what Lance had to say in the last message because it ties right into that. Brothers and sisters, there is something for God that has virtually nothing to do with your needs or my needs that God is after and that God gets when his people come together and function in a meeting where there is no human headship. It's something for the Lord. Now, I want to read one passage of Scripture, and I want to talk about it and probe this nerve a little bit deeper. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 8. To me, Paul is speaking, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unfathomable, the unsearchable, the inexhaustible riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which was hidden for ages and has been hidden in God who created all things. Look at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God Might now be made known or revealed or disclosed or expressed through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to read. Verse 10 again. Paul says here in this passage that God has commissioned him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, inexhaustible riches of Christ and the mystery which has been hid in God, so that, this is the product of that preaching, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be expressed through the church to principalities and powers and heavenly places. And then he says, this was in accordance with God's eternal purpose. Beyond salvation, but deep within the beating heart of God, there is his eternal purpose. God has had a purpose from before time. It's his dream. It's why he created. The father was so in love with his son that he decided to clone him. And uh, our brother read Genesis chapter one. Man is created in the image of God. Now in the Godhead, there's only one who bears an image and that's the son. Man was created to express and to bear the image of Jesus Christ in the earth. He was made to bear and reflect and express God's Son in the earth. And that brought great pleasure to the Father, to see His Son revealed and expressed throughout this earth through man. And the other thing was that man would not only rule the earth, but he would subdue the creeping things. You know what the creeping things are? That's God's enemy. Two things, bearing his image and subduing the enemy. And then he said, multiply. In other words, that image was to spread through the earth. That was to be a corporate image. What is the body of Christ? What is the purpose of a body? What's the purpose of your body, brother? What what is the purpose of your body? It's to contain the life that is within you. It's also to express the life that is within you. If you didn't have a body, just imagine with me, you just had a brain and it was not connected to a body, there would be no expression of your personality. (laughs) Right? The body of Christ exists To express the life that is within it the body of Christ you and I have one purpose and that is to express the one who lives inside that body to give expression to the head and you know how you give expression to the head by functioning when you open your mouth and speak Jesus Christ has a tongue you give Christ a tongue in the earth You give Christ a hand, you give Him an eye, you give Him ears, you give Him expression when you function according to that life that's in you. And you know what else? When you function together with other members of the body, something spiritual happens that's not related to us on this earth. Spiritual beings in heavenly places are observing and listen to me and listen to me well when God's people, when you and I when members of the body of Christ put ourselves under his headship in a meeting when we come together and we're functioning two things happen Jesus Christ is now made visible Mm. he's now made visible You know the word ekklesia? It's the word translated church. You know what that means? What does that mean? Actually, it got that meaning later. In the first century, it didn't have that meaning. Anybody know what it meant in the first century? Assembly. Assembly. When you assemble ear, eye, nose, foot, hand, legs, tongue, you are putting together a person you are making visible Jesus Christ he is now made visible again in the earth when the body functions and what does that do that edifies the members of the body you're built up by that flow of that river but something else happens that does not have anything to do with the earth the manifold wisdom of God is revealed through the church to spiritual beings in heavenly places, in other realms, in other words, listen to this, brothers and sisters, when the body of Christ comes together and gathers under Christ's headship, that is a testimony to you as members To God, but also to principalities and powers. That Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, is still alive and He's alive enough to lead His church invisibly. To lead fallen men like you and me. It is a testimony and a witness to principalities and powers that He's still alive. Amen. And you know what that does? That shames the enemy. That shames God's enemy and God gets satisfaction out of that. God gets satisfaction out of that. It's not just for us, it's for the angels. It's for principalities and powers. It's for God Himself because Jesus Christ and His body cannot be separated. And guess what? When you sit down in a pew on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night and you watch the program and you're sitting there as a spectator as part of a passive priesthood, there is no testimony that Jesus Christ is alive and working through His body because you have a man that's leading the whole thing. No, it's when the body of Christ functions without a human head. And I'll tell you something, this is a very, very sacred thing. The meetings of the church, if I can communicate it this way, this is an important matter. This is not something that we just willy-nilly, let's come together and let's have tea and coffee and get to know each other, well that's good in the beginning, but there is something higher and deeper that God is after that goes back to His eternal purpose of creating man. This is the meeting of the church and it edifies the body, it builds up the body, it manifests Jesus Christ, and it gives God glory by shaming His own enemy. It is a heavenly thing. This is an overview of the church meeting. And would to God that more of His people would come into this experience. Now, I want to close by attempting to make this a little bit practical. I really would need another session to go into the practicals of this but I want to make a few observations. We just read a letter written by a man who went from town to town and basically preached the gospel, gathered a group of saints together, taught them about that life that lives in them which is Jesus Christ, gave them a little bit of help in how to gather together and then he left them on their own. Now, in that church in Corinth was five years old when he wrote that letter to them. He spent 18 months there. 18 months of preaching the gospel building that church equipping that church and then he left it on its own Now thank God. They did not erect a pastor or a liturgy instead. They went the other way and they went into chaos and Confusion if I had to choose between one or the other I'll go that way any day It's a lot better because you can always bring it back. You got a pastor there. Forget about it. You're you're done It's over but What's happening there? here is a church but it's having all these problems and they write a letter to the person that gave them a beginning that's what we read and then he responds to them and he gives them a little bit of help he points them back to Jesus Christ he gives them some guidelines now that same man we read about in Acts 13 it was an assignment that we were given and one of the question marks that I had was this How come God did not send all five of those brothers to the work? He sent two. And what were they doing before the Holy Spirit sent them out to plant churches? Well, we all know they went to Bible school. And then after that they went to seminary. No, they were experiencing that which they later would plant in other places. Okay? Now, let me sneak up to my point here by saying this. If right now, we said to this entire group, you all are gonna meet in this city every week for the next three months, and you're going to try to flesh out what you just heard me speak about. An open participatory meeting with no liturgy, no human headship, under Christ you're going to do it for three weeks nobody's going to tell you anything about how to do this you're just going to do it do you have any idea what would happen in those meetings? talk to me here I think you have about ten splits I appreciate that ten splits I think a lot of people would start actually talking amongst each other and they're a little bit confused because they've seen something new and they want to talk it out because they don't know what's really true Okay, I appreciate that too. Human nature would be to build a liturgy and... Okay. Okay. Find a pastor. Okay. I think there would be a lot of silence. There'll be a lot of silence, brother. That's right. There would be a lot of silence among many, but there would be what among others? That's right. Somebody take over. Constant (laughs) domination chatting no off switch on and I mean this is what would happen all these things would happen and the reason for that is simple you and I if we've spent any time in institutional Christianity have been conditioned to be passive and to ask permission to do anything in the way of functioning if somebody wanted to sing a song you know how they would do it can we sing number 15 can we Because first of all, you would expect someone to lead the singing. But let's say we threw that out too. There are no leaders at all. You're going to meet under the headship of Christ. You would notice lots of silence. You would notice some people who believe that they were something try to teach everybody else. Which would lead to many splits because then you'd get into differences of doctrine. You know why I'm saying this to you? You know, on what basis? I get letters all the time. And I've been around this and I've watched it happen. God does breathe everywhere. There's open hearts and desperation. And people will experience this kind of manifestation organically and naturally when they get in touch with that life. And they get to know one another. And that's very important. group of people need to get to know one another first or else they're not going to feel comfortable doing this. However, however you will at some point hit a wall. And not only that, but you're going to start seeing problems in relationships. And this, is, this has been touched on before, but when you remove clergy, you remove liturgy, you got two things happening. One is you have a free way for the Holy Spirit to operate and for that river to come forth. But you have another thing going on. You don't have any more props. And what happens is your humanity gets exposed. And you're going to have times where you'll go through dry spells. You'll come to the point where, okay, this is not happening anymore like it used to. What do we do now? And that's when you're going to start philosophizing and theorizing and perhaps even disagreeing. I'll just say this to you. I get mail constantly, not only in the United States, but from all over the world. And here's why I hear it so often. We left the organized church six months ago. We started meeting in a home. It was glorious. It was beautiful. We got to know one another. We were free. But now we have run out, period. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. Or we had one year of just marvelous community life. And now we're starting to see who we really were. And we're having major problems. And we got two splits going on. And we don't know what to do about it. And by the way, hear me now. All of that is very much in line with the first century church. Because what you have in the first century, and this is what your New Testament is made up of, it is made up of letters written to churches that were going through these kinds of problems because they didn't have a clergy and they didn't have a liturgy holding them together. But they had someone they can go to who had experience... In this kind of meeting many years of experience and they were able to ask those people for help and that's what your letters in the New Testament are for Jesus Christ is the same today yesterday and forever he still operates the same way God is still breathing through signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit that's all true praise the Lord for that but he also does things the way he did in the first century as well when it comes to how the church is built And my point is this, you cannot really properly experience and come into a full understanding and practice of that which you've never had experience in beforehand. God has set up in His body those who have different callings, and one of those callings is to help churches not only get started, but to help them through crisis. And the only way a person can help you through crisis is if they themselves have experienced that kind of meeting themselves and come out and have survived it. So my word to you is simply this. If you are beginning to go down this road, and for me there's no other road to go down. <laughs> no. If you go down this road, it's important that you find some people who have been down that road before. And there are men in this room. Well, no, there's men and women in this room who have been gathering this way, like I described for many years. And I will say this. When I moved into this myself, I was 23 years old. And everybody around me in this fellowship, when we left the organized church, we were all in our 20s. And we had no idea that there was help available. We met that way for eight years. And let me tell you something. It was blood. Sweat and tears mixed with glory. The way I describe it, it was glory and gore together. We had nobody to help us. And we went through two bloody church splits. We had struggles with meetings, seasons of terrible dry spells that lasted longer than they should have. We had countless problems. If we stand up and interview the people in this room, who have gathered this way for over 10 years, and, and there are some in this room who have, who have done so, they can tell you stories that'll make you cry about what God's people can do to one another when you remove the safety net of the clergy and sitting in a pew, passive, because we are fallen. Okay? Praise the Lord. Well, I'm still, I'm still going at it. I would never go back. But my point is this: it is important that you realize that unlike us when we first started we had nobody to go for help it is important that you know that there are people in this room that have made themselves available and they help churches it's important that you get connected with such individuals it will spare you so much pain and heartache and it will bring you into levels that you never imagined some of it shortcuts to be quite honest with you because they've been there before That is my practical word for you, is to find individuals who've walked this path before and just pump them with questions and receive help from them. Because I tell you what, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. He's placed us all in the body to do different things and it's important that we learn from one another.